Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I don't have to introduce myself. That's great. Uh, we're in the midst of a series on what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Dennis dispelled the thought that it was actually done on a mount. By our standards, it was done on a little hill. And this morning, I want to dispel the fact that it was a sermon. If you want a sermon, take a look at Peter right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or take a look at Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17. But what the Word says is that Jesus gathered his disciples together, these crowds that were following him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And, and if we look at the content, it's not really a sermon. It's an orientation to the kingdom. It's Kingdom 101. Uh, for those who, who, who would follow, it was, it was kind of an onboarding. And what he's really doing is he's explaining the kingdom which he has been proclaiming is now at hand and is accessible, to which they all now had access and, and what we've seen so far is he begins with some principles, one of which is those who are often marginalized in the alternative kingdom, the kingdom of the world, are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. People who are mourning, people who are meek, who have their power under control, people who are merciful, people who are peacemakers, people who are persecuted, often marginalized in the world but blessed in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, he asserts the fact that kingdom subjects are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And them, those who were listening at the time, and us, are to live in such a way that what we do and how we do it radiates to the glory of the Father in heaven. And in this orientation, he describes the relationship of the kingdom as he is describing it to the current Jewish order. And he says, what's unchanged is the law and the prophets. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not one little punctuation point is going to go away on that. But he says there is something that's changing, and that is unless your righteousness, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that passage is the key that unlocks the entire orientation on the little hill. Because what he says from here on is an explanation with illustrations of what it means to have righteousness that exceeds that of the religious elite at the time. And I think it's also important to understand he is not speaking here about eternity. You will not enter into the kingdom of heaven because he's talking about righteousness. And in Titus it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
their righteousness wasn't going to get them into heaven. But having righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees was going to enable them to participate in the kingdom that was at hand. Now, in the messages that we've had so far, Jesus talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths or our word being reliable. And today we're going to take on two additional subjects, retaliation and love. With me so far? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spoken word that created this world. We thank you for the living word, Jesus, and we thank you for the written word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we invite you to divide our soul and spirit this morning and to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And indeed, people had heard an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. In Leviticus 24, it says, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given the person shall be given to him. So they had heard that. And similarly in Exodus, if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. They had heard it. And in fact, that was part of the judicial structure of the nation of of Israel. And, and, And it was the principle of proportionate response. You know, you don't give somebody a splinter and break their arm. It was, it was proportional response. But what Jesus is saying here is, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's what it says in my translation and most translations. But it's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It is paneo, which means to toil. And, and so what he's really saying is, Do not resist the one who is toilsome to you. Do not resist the one who is troublesome to you. Do not apply Old Testament judicial principles concerning injury or harm to issues that are merely toilsome. And he gives four examples. One slaps another on the face. Okay, how many have seen in the movies the guy slapped the girl on the face? 
Oh, come on, raise your hands. You've seen it in the movies. How many of you in the movies have seen the girl slap the guy on his face? All right. That's what he's talking about. You know, this has been extrapolated to don't defend yourself. But he he says, look, if someone offends you, and it was as offensive then as it is now, and, and, and so what is the response of those operating in the kingdom of the world if you get slapped across the face? Slap them back. Okay? What is the rule of the one dwelling in the kingdom of heaven or under the authority of the kingdom of heaven? Turn the other cheek. Okay? And there's kingdom wisdom behind this. What is the kingdom wisdom? You know, Jesus has already said, blessed are the meek. And remember, meek is not doormat. Meek is having power under control. Moses was meek. He had his power under control. Jesus was meek. He had his power under control. Blessed are the meek, those who could slap him back and decide not to. And in fact, in Proverbs, it says, the beginning of strife is like a letting out of water. The beginning of strife is like the breaking of the dam. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. That's the kingdom wisdom. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. Example number two. They had lawyers back then as we had lawyers now. One sues another to take the shirt off your back. Literally, the clinic was a long garment worn next to the skin. So somebody sues you to take the shirt off your back. What's the world's response? Counter-sue, right? And what's the kingdom response? Give them your coat. Give them your cloak. Give them your coat. What's the kingdom wisdom? We read earlier in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said earlier in the orientation on the hill, come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. (coughs) Sort it out before that comes to pass. He says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And what isn't stated here is what happens to that relationship? You know, Jesus is concerned about the relationship and, and if we take someone to court, if we sue and we countersue, what happens to that relationship? Example number three, one forces another to go one mile. This typically would be a Roman soldier who had every legitimate right (coughs) to secund you from whatever you were doing to carry his pack for a mile. It was illegal. It was... and, And... So what's the world response? All right, I'll do it. But I don't like it. I will resent it. And what's the kingdom response? Oh, this is great. I don't have enough steps on my Fitbit yet. And in fact, really, I'd like to have some more steps. So how about if I carry this the second mile? A fourth example one begs or asks to borrow. I'm convicted by this. I, I, you know, in, in working on it, I mean, the problem with speaking is you get 
convicted before the rest of the congregation. But I, I see folks, and we call them panhandlers. It's, it's a dismissive term, but probably they are homeless. And probably they are. Probably they do need food. And likely they are going to make abuses that Mark's process that he explained this morning uh, eliminates. But, you know, what should we do? And what about borrowing? This really challenges me. Any of you who have ever asked to borrow my chainsaw, I don't like to lend my chainsaw. I'm happy to come cut your tree, but if I lend it to you, the blade will come back dull. You will have cut rocks and ground and so forth. And this says, lend it. And when it comes back, take it down to Bramble Mower and have the chain sharpened. So he is not talking about here about matters of injury or harm that should be decided by a judge and, 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 and carried out in appropriate ways. What he is saying is that in cases like this, the rule of the world is to react. And most often it is not proportionally. We escalate. Slap me once, I'll slap you twice. And the rule of the kingdom is restraint, a disproportionate response, less than it is warranted with our strength under control. Now, as we've talked about this, has God brought to mind any examples, any of Jesus' examples that you would really like to ignore or explain away? And if he has, hold that thought, because that might turn out to be the basis for a really good I will statement at the end of our message today. So Jesus says, don't respond in kind when others make toilsome demands on you. But now he really starts meddling, doesn't he? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For your Father in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So... When we looked at eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we could actually find where that was said. Uh, When it comes to love your neighbor, hate your enemy, we can only find half of that. In Leviticus 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Let's get a running start. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, that was the second commandment. When Jesus was asked, what are the top two? This was the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say anything, and I could not find anything that says hate your neighbor. So what I'm assuming is there's some kind of an extrapolation here. Okay, all right. I have to love my brother, whether I like it or not, so I guess I can hate my enemy. And it's not there. Well, if we're, if we're going to talk about this, I think we need to distinguish, because of the English language, we need to distinguish between love in the world and love in the kingdom. And if we had different words for love, we would be better off. But love in the world typically is a feeling of affection. There are some in this room that love football. You will be glued to the tube this afternoon. Or I love the fall colors, or I love pumpkin pie, or if you grew up in Cincinnati or have been a successful transplant here, I love Cincinnati chili, or I love cats, or I love dogs, or I love the mountains, or I love the beach. I have feelings of affection for these things. And if you're operating, if if the only definition you have is that definition, it is nonsensical to love our enemies, to have affectionate feelings toward our enemies, to be infatuated by our enemies. Does anybody besides Nodge agree with me? Thank you. Nodge, I love you sitting right And, and, you know, Rob talked about um, the the men's retreat and, and our growing relationships with the guys from New Mission, and it's wonderful. And one of their distinctive characteristics is they are continually appreciative and affirmative when people are speaking. So it's, Amen. Thank you. Amen. Right. Amen. Bring it. All right. So, but in the, so if, in the kingdom of the world, love is a feeling of affection. In the kingdom of heaven, love is a matter of action. Not long after Beth and I uh, got married, we listened to a tape series called The Scriptural Home Seminar by a navigator whose name is George Sanchez. And his definition for love was, love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another and seeks their good. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another and seeks their good. How's that sound? Well, I thought maybe we ought to test old Georgie out here and see if we can find some biblical answers to this. So, unselfish. How about uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Unselfish. Check. Freely accepts. 
So how should we approach someone who was created in the image of God? What should our attitude be toward an image bearer of God? Should we accept them? And really, he wasn't finished just with the creation. In 1 Peter 3, we're told, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness but is patient toward you is patient toward all, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Will God freely respect anyone? Is he vigorously pursuing everyone? Freely accepts. If we are apprentices, check. Seeks his good. Interesting passage in Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. Come on. I know it's the 9 o'clock service, but you can do it. And if he is thirsty, give him water to For you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. And and we've had the discussion before. That is not you're going to burn him to death. That is his fire has gone out. He's trying to borrow coals from you so he can relight his fire. You are serving him. And it doesn't matter what his response is because the Lord will reward you. I mean, the sense of that verse, will the Lord reward you for scorching somebody? No. So it has to be you're meeting a need for burning coals. The Lord will... So... Seeks his good. Check. Now, to me, the most illuminating passage on the kingdom meeting of love is this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life. For his friends. You know, when I have discussions about love, I cannot stop myself from recognizing this and communicating this. It is not feelings of affection. It is a matter of action in which I lay down my life for someone else. And if I am not being asked to lay down my life physically, then it is a matter of laying down my agenda in the interests of someone else. And love in the kingdom is kind of a transferable skill. In fact, maybe there's a progression here where we can work ourselves up to loving our enemies. We start by loving God. For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your might, the first commandments. Interesting, Jesus picked two that weren't in the Ten Commandments. Okay? And and it shouldn't be too hard to love God because he's never done anything to offend us. We sang this morning, he's good, 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 oh, good, 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 and more good. 
But we, we lay down our life. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised. That's restoration. That's back to what God had in mind for us in the first place. Not living on the basis of our agenda, but living on the basis of his agenda. Who wouldn't want to be on that team? I mean, that's first-round draft pick. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This isn't, you know, I would tell you that the affectionate feelings come along. But this command isn't gin up affectionate feelings. This is love our wives as Christ loved the church. Girls, I'd love to tell you it says love your husbands, but doesn't. So I'm not going to go there today. Love your wives. Next circle out, love one another in the body. And this is interesting. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What was the old commandment? Love others as you love yourself. The new commandment is you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Love like I did laying down your life, laying down your agenda for someone else. One more circle out. Love your neighbor. In the Luke account, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know. If I was around, I think I would have learned not to ask Jesus questions because it only got people into trouble. But Jesus says, look, here's a story. Here's a Samaritan. Somebody you look down on and the people you look up to walk past an Israelite who has been set upon by robbers and beaten and stripped and robbed. And the Samaritan, someone that, someone that the victim would have looked down on, sets aside his agenda. He sets aside his time. He sets aside the oil and wine that he was carrying for his lunch. He sets aside his treasure, his money, and in fact makes a long-term commitment in the absence of health insurance to take care of this person that he did not know. And if we can love God, love our wives, love one another, love our neighbors, then we can get to loving our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's kind of an antithetical thought, a countercultural thought, isn't it? But what do we have to lose, really? Because at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." We ought to be thanking the people who persecute us for reward in heaven, right? Okay? That's kind of the flip answer. But 
What might we pray for those who persecute us? What might we pray? Pray for them. Pray for salvation. I heard that word. Pray for salvation. What else? Forgive them. Forgive them. Right. Anything else? Pray that they would be delivered from being on the wrong side of God in this issue. Pray that they would be delivered from darkness. Pray that they would be delivered from the poison of being at odds with others. Pray that they would be converted to a relationship with Jesus. And we have an example in this, don't we? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And the way our Father works is He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And these are just word pictures that people would get in mind. He's looking after the evil as well as the good. And then it says, you must therefore be perfect. You must be mature as your heavenly Father is perfect. As kingdom subjects, ought we not follow the example of our sovereign? I think this book, Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Nee, is the first Christian book I ever bought. This was... Back in the time when Christian bookstores actually sold books and not trinkets, but we won't go there. (laughs) But I remember this. My life is to be governed by the principle of the cross and the perfection of the Father. Ye therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here is the practicality of this. A brother in South China had a rice field in the middle of the hill. In time of drought, he used a water wheel worked by a treadmill to lift water from the irrigation stream into his field. His neighbor had two fields below his and one night made a breach in the dividing bank and drained off all his water. When the brother repaired the breach and pumped in more water, his neighbor did the same thing again. And this was repeated three or four times. So he consulted the brethren. I have tried to be patient and not retaliate, he said. But is it right? After they had prayed together about it, one of them replied, If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. The brother was much impressed. Next morning he pumped water for the two fields below and in the afternoon pumped water for his own field. After that, the water stayed in his field. His neighbor was so amazed at his action that he began to inquire the reason. And in the course of time, he too became a Christian. So, my brethren, don't stand on your right. Don't feel that because you have gone the second mile, you have done what is just. The second mile is only typical of the third And the fourth, the principle, is that of conformity to Christ. 
Well, this is the third of three sermons on the kingdom heart, and I'd, I'd like you now to close your eyes for a minute. And I'd like you to imagine a world in which everyone resolves their anger. Everyone controls their lustful intentions. Everyone remains faithful to their marriage vows. Everyone can be trusted when they say yes and when they say no. Everyone will respond with with restraint when confronted by toilsome behavior. And everyone sets aside their agenda on behalf of others, even their enemies. It reminded me of the song by Louis Armstrong in a different context, What a Wonderful World It Would Be. So you can open your eyes. What you saw in your mind's eye is what we are called to. To live that way at home, in the body of Christ, at work, in our neighborhood, in our nation. And guaranteed, if we do, our light will shine. Others will see our good works. And they will, in due time, give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now, I mentioned at the outset, the key to understanding the conversation on the hill is all about righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. But the key to appropriating the benefit, the key to entering into the benefit, is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And he contrasted them, and anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will like be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And that's why we're so concerned about I will statements. We want to be the wise who hear and do. So we're about to enter into the Lord's Supper. Um, Coincidentally, this is World Communion Sunday, first Sunday of every October. So you might, as we go to the Lord's table, think of those around the world brothers and sisters around the world who are participating in this just like we are. And I would encourage you in a moment as you examine yourself to think of if there is an I will statement in the ideas that we've had today about responding with restraint and loving our enemies. And with that in mind, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Secondhand, this was from Paul. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you come.
And I wonder if the prayer teams could find your way to the corners up here if you have a matter, an I will statement, something else that you'd like prayer. The prayer teams are available. The Lord's table is open.